Oh, hey, how are you? How's it going? This is After the Gig. I'm Jesse. And today on the show, I have the great Billy Woodward. Billy Woodward and I know each other through our mutual friend, Dan Mills, who has been on the show. But Billy is an incredible performer, great singer, songwriter. He was the understudy for Johnny Cash and Elvis on the Broadway musical Million Dollar Quartet. We get into a little bit of that during the conversation, so I'm not sure uh, how in context a lot of it is, but if we're talking about um, Broadway and that experience, then it's about his experience in Million Dollar Quartet doing that whole thing and and um, what the, not really, I guess the audition process, but how he was discovered in that. It's very interesting stuff. Um, Billy is also an incredible animator. He worked for Rolling Stone for a little while, a little stint, kind of like a double stint there. And then he also did the animation on the David Crosby documentary that came out, um, which is awesome. It's some of my favorite parts of, of that, of that documentary, but he's just an all around awesome dude. Really, really great guy. Love spending time with Billy. And, um, he has a new album coming out this spring. And his last album in 2013 was an EP uh, that he came out with called The Beast in Me, which is all recorded at Sun Studios in Memphis, which is super duper cool. So uh, I'm going to be featuring some music from that album, that EP on this episode. So please stick around for the music after the episode. As always, you can email into the show at afterthegigpod at gmail.com. There's a Patreon at patreon.com slash afterthegig. That's a great way to support the podcast, keep the party going, and check out some exclusive content. Um, so without further ado, my buddy Billy Woodward. He lies along the lake than I ever thought they would. And they ever start to give them on a split like wood I try my very best to cover up my words And this lying thing ain't easy to do No need, no test to detect dishonesty How has it affected you and your music? Have you been trying to get back out there and playing, doing doing gigs or writing? or? Yeah, I you? was able to, you know, I played a like a handful of gigs and I've been mainly doing like solo stuff recently. So it makes right. that quite a bit more manageable, you know, cause it's not corralling some guys together and, you know, um, so I was able to do that. The big thing is I actually did a record. I have a, a full LP dropping in the spring. Wow. So yeah, I, I ended up recording late 2020 and I just did basics with a couple drummers uh, at studio G in Greenpoint. And then we, sort of like, you know, shipped everything else out. Um, That's awesome. You know, people recording remote and uh, did a couple pickups. And so it's been productive way more so than I expected in that department to yeah. actually, you know, get a, get a record under the belt that I've been hoping and planning to do for a long time. Um, and then having, I think the impending, uh, transformation into fatherhood into parenthood was the kind of the big push was you know that all happened uh in 2020 you know yeah. like uh we we were i think like most people hey that seems like a nice even number 2020 that's gonna be a good one so it's gonna we be a great year hoping, 2020 be a great year we were always hoping to to have uh have a kid that year and so it just so happened that everything kind of landed at the same time and then the, the the final push was like, okay, if if he's coming in winter of twenty one, I should probably get in and record these tunes. So, anywho, you know that that's been nice. A uh, couple shows here and there. Now I'm just looking towards the summer to yeah. you know when the weather's good to get out and start playing again. Yeah. So uh, tell me about the record. How many how many songs are on it? Um, who, who eleven tunes playing on it. Yeah, 11 tunes. Um, we got the uh, old Corey Kaiser on bass. Oh. Yep, yep. He tracked at his house, his little home studio. Uh, who else we got? We got Al Whitman on guitar. Uh, we have uh, uh, G Wiz uh, uh, and Ramblin' Rob Heath on drums. So they kind of like split task when we did basics. Mm-hmm. 
And then, boy, I was, I'd almost have to pull up the, the roster. The guy who ended up producing this guy named John Jackson, who mm-hmm. I know through the uh, 11th Street Bar family. So he used a bunch of his contacts. We got the Mastersons on a couple songs. And um, uh, it was it was super enjoyable, man. It was That's definitely awesome. unlike what I had done in the past because the last time I was in the studio was cut live down at Sun mm-hmm. many moons ago. So to oh my God. do something... <laughs> How fun is that? Get in. Oh, that was amazing. But to, you know, actually track, uh, you know, layered on top, you know, was definitely a new experience. And it was cool. Everything came out really great. Then we shipped it down to Memphis to my buddy Matt Ross Bang. He mixed it. Uh, whilst Jeff Berner was the engineer at, at uh, Studio G. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super stoked on it. It's songs I had which you've heard me perform before I had in the pocket for quite a while, plus some uh, newer guys, uh, some that were written during the pandemic. And so it feels like a very, like, uh, like a holistic record. Yeah. Kind of like when I was planning it out. Yeah. Well, when I was planning it out, I wanted to do like another uh, like concept kind of thing. Cause my first uh, EP was a concept idea. And so this one, I um, wanted to do something similar. So it's kind of, loosely based on the hero's journey but i, I love the think first gonna... one thanks man Thank i love you. it i think yeah. it's cool it's like kind of a so the concept gritty, right? is, yeah it's very gritty and and i actually had f- forgotten that you recorded that in, in sun studios live i i uh that that i forgot all about that and uh it, what was it? it's like like a where a werewolf vibe kind of thing yeah that's yeah, what it was the yeah. werewolf record yeah yeah, yeah. so if it, you love like you know nostalgic horror movies you know it's really cool. Werewolf in London. Yeah. I need to get I need to get it again or 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 download it on Spotify or something because I my computer that I had that I had the record on uh was destroyed. Oh <laughs> so, no. And it wasn't and for you whatever like reason it wasn't back up. guy who's out at the uh the landfill at the, with yeah, uh, at the landfill looking just... for bitcoin. <laughs> I don't even he's understand. Like a... I don't understand that. And how it works. Like, I don't understand how he can. It's is, kind he of heart, is he looking for hard drives or a hard, uh, one hard particular drive. hard drive? His hard drive. It's oh. his hard drive that he trashed, but he had bought Bitcoin back when it first made the scene. So God. if so he has his it. hard drive, he would be like in the hundreds of millions of dollars, right? <laughs> so it's worth it for him to, like, you know, plot it out and start digging it up. So yeah. you can do the same thing for the beast in me. <laughs> I could, <laughs> or I just sure stream could. it, or just stream it, or just stream. It. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't have, I don't have the resources that that guy <laughs> apparently has. That's so funny. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I, I mean, I had the experience of of recording at um at Sun once, and it's like a very, it's a very interesting experience because you're in this room that was hollowed ground, right? Yeah, hollowed ground, leg- yeah. like legendary. Got the tape on the ground where who'd you who'd you record with? Did. I uh, I got to do the live um, live at Sun Studios. I think it was a PBS thing. Oh, Sun Sessions. Sun Sessions. Yeah. Yeah, I did, I did that too. Yeah, I did Sun Sessions with Stephen Kellogg, and I've actually I That's haven't right. seen it. I've never seen it. Um, so you know, it, apparently it it they kind of roll out when you can see it kind of throughout the country on the PBS stations, but mm-hmm. I should just go on. I'm sure it's on YouTube or something like that, but I haven't. Yeah, YouTube I'm, or Vimeo. It's got to yeah, be there. Enough time had gone by where I just kind of forgot about it. And so I need to go back and, and listen to it. But what, what, what a good time that is, huh? So like fun. It's, uh, it's so, so fun. unique and special. Like, I, uh, I like very how fortunate to have done that. Yeah. I like, I, I don't know if you had the same experience, but I like how loose, they were about things. I, it oh, wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like. Uh, so you're in sunsuit. Don't touch anything. Don't do this. Like they took me in the control room. I was messing with faders. It was. It was <laughs> yeah. really really fun. <laughs> and uh, the people. The people that ran it were just were just like lovely people. It was awesome. Yeah, there's definitely that sensibility down there, and specifically like at that studio and any of the like the tours you go on, if you go to see Stax or even Graceland, there's just yeah. a very modest while at the same time, I, I think a good example is actually Graceland because I, in my mind's eye, when I first went, you're expecting this really grandiose property. And it is 
grand, but right. at the same time, it feels rather like modest. You know it's well, I mean? but it's welcoming. It's, it's not welcoming. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you don't feel like feel you're like walking into a museum. Bingo. Yeah, and they they they're definitely um, they want you to take part. They want you to uh, live the experience down there, which I appreciate. And the food, my God, the food. Yeah. The food's really Did you go to good. Gus's? I don't know if you're a fried chicken fiend like me, but uh, I, I mean, I love I love fried chicken, but I uh, man, I honestly cannot remember what we. I think we went to like a bar that night because we were in between, either playing Nashville and then going to Memphis, and um, so it was one of those like you're here for a night and we got something quick and not much was open because I might I might have been a Sunday. Um, oh wow! Okay, so it it wasn't like. Uh, you're here for a few days and you get to actually experience this city like you should gotcha. experience it. So yeah. um, it was a lot of just like get in there and, and play the songs over and over again. So, which um, is okay because then you save something for next time. That is know? right. I would love to, I would love to go back. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that we don't get we don't really play Memphis um, uh, very much or like. You know, there's a lot of places that we that we don't play that I'd like to play. Like New Orleans is another place that we don't play that much. Uh, maybe like once every couple of years. Uh, right. But you know, there's, there's so something about that whole little corridor down there, man. It just mm-hmm. holds a very special place in my heart. Yeah. Like you can just uh, you can feel it. <laughs> yeah. Now your you music, I would it. just I would describe you as like like Americana meets you know the band meets. Uh, I guess the band would be like Americana, but and meets meets like rockabilly. So it's like all those, I'll take it, yeah. all those things kind of like blended into one. And I'm curious, like how, um, because I didn't, I didn't grow up in in a place where rockabilly or even even stuff like the band was was really. Po- like popular to me as a as a kid right. weren't exposed to it i wasn't exposed to it very much like my dad yeah. was super into prog rock so i knew about like yes and sticks and rush and all right. these all these different bands and um and i wasn't introduced to the band until much later like college and which right. i f- completely fell in love with it leave on right you know it's hard not to as well it's unbelievable yeah. like just the voices yeah, the first and, two records were just uh yeah stellar you know, yeah works like, art. yeah it's just it's unbelievable but what um how early were you uh kind of uh exposed to stuff like that oh phone's ringing <laughs> hello 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 it's, it's fine it's not even my house oh i'm gonna hang it up <laughs> <laughs> oh, go for it, go for it. All right, Better sorry. luck next time. Better luck next time, <laughs> unknown. Okay. Call okay. from unknown. Um, um, that's usually spam. Yeah, <laughs> so <always> spam. Uh, uh, so when I was a kid, that stuff was constantly played by my dad and my uncle. Yeah, and um, both my parents, which is funny because I think when you're young. If like I'm the oldest of four, so if you're a middle or younger child, you're looking towards your older siblings for, you know, direction. They're usually passing along music to you. Or, but if you're the oldest, it's usually friends, peers, or your parents. You know, like so many people who grow up in households, they end up, you know, adoring the music that was around them. And so, my pop, he's always been a huge Elvis fan, which he passed on to me. You know, Mm -hmm. from a very early age. Uh, hence the rockabilly stuff he played buddy holly and right. he usually had these like uh they were like uh you know best of the 50s he had compilation records that he would play every so often he would you know run an album but um you know the good thing about that is you get exposed to so many different people but he was a big fan like you know ray charles and fats domino and um jerry lee lewis so that stuff was always playing when he put on music and then my mom uh, was way more of like a, you know, like a hippie. Like she loved uh, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and them uh, more. So I remember, so I guess I, I should point to the, the biggest thing was my, I grew up above this little cafe that my parents started uh, in Southern Maryland, Calvert County called the galley. So it was this old building. I still have dreams about the place because it was very, 
beautiful but spooky. Like it mm-hmm. <laughs> made quite the impression. I think I moved there when I was like five or six. Um, stayed until my teenage years, but it was a dual level. And my ultimately, my parents opened this cafe at the bottom, and they had a jukebox. And so when I was a kid, you know, that jukebox was always spinning with a ton of these records, plus some little tasty nuggets from like, you know, the eighties, like Elton John. I guess that's why they call it the blues. Which I yeah. love that song is still so good. That's a great, that's <laughs> um, a great song. That's a great tune. Um, so it was between that and then also I would uh, go with my dad to go visit my uncle and they would just go on these like tears and they would just listen to, you know, tons of Elvis, ton of the band and, uh, you know, throw quite a few back. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, as I can you remember should many, when you're listening as to you that. should, I remember many a late nights of them trying to, you know, uh, match seventies Elvis, is you know guttural vibrato you know glory glory hallelujah yeah. <laughs> you have a bit i mean when you perform like you have a serious vibrato going on it's it's cool it's cool it's different thanks man it, yeah, it's man. an interest it's you have a really interesting way of delivering lyrics in your music it's it's cool i like i love it thanks buddy i i Maybe. appreciate it yeah and it comes from i think uh a myriad of places but that's definitely one of them one of the strongest is listening to a ton of elvis and um, then, you know, as, as I got, uh, older and the funny thing is the band, I didn't know as the band, I was just a kid. So a lot of the stuff I didn't quite absorb until later. So it was for me too, it was post, uh, it was college and post-college where I really got interested in seeking out music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had the idea back in, it was like 2004 to like, uh, I didn't even know what rockabilly was, but I knew I wanted to start writing songs. Like I'd been in like punk bands, like she, you know, punk rock, pop punk bands back in the, like the early 2000s. And yeah. then in 2004, I said, you know what? I want to start writing. I love oldies. I love like old, like uh doo-wop records. When you throw on the oldie stage, I didn't know the names of many people that yeah. uh, were of that time. And so I started just doing massive research and kind of fell into the rabbit hole. And started to try and write songs that felt timeless, like the tunes that came out. Only to find out it's like, yeah, you're not a pioneer here. There's been people doing that for a long <laughs> yeah. time. Here are the straight cats. You know? <laughs> Listen, I think I can figure this out. <laughs> I think I'm on to something here. You know? It's like the flux capacitor. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey. You know. Um, speaking of, I think that also had a little thing to do with it. I think any 80s kid who grew up, there was this funny thing that you can feel happening now. Like kids always look. 20 to 30 years right. prior for like, there's something hip about it. And I think it comes from the exposure from parents and stuff like that. Like the nineties are all of a sudden, like, you know, right. super dope again. You see kids walking around in the mall and they look like they were plucked out of mall rats. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The big white wash jeans with the, with yeah. the, and in the eighties, it was that with the fifties, you know, they had a ton of like, uh, biopic picks and, you know, but, um, so, uh, and then in college, you know, I, I really started in heavy on Sam Cooke. Like I knew a bunch of his tunes by the melodies and the song, and the, you know, the songs themselves, but I knew nothing about him. And then I just, you know, like I fell in love with Sam Cooke. So I, you know, really went through a lot of his songs. But I think um, all that together is what, you know, has informed my modern day songwriting, which is just uh, kind of a grab bag, which the continual digging is what leads you to more little treasures. So starting, starting from those entry points. And then, you know, the more you start following that thread of what lights you up, you know, you find yourself into like old, you know, folk tunes and old, the original, the original YouTube rabbit hole. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I remember Um, I, I was the same way, like with, with discovering music and stuff in college. Like I, I wasn't exposed to, like I said, like a very limited, uh, a batch of music. Like my, I have an older brother and an older sister and my brother would listen to, uh, like hip hop and rap. Like it was, you know, like Snoop Dogg and and Wu-Tang Clan just with him. And then with my sister, she was more into alternative, like Oasis and stuff like that. So, you know, finding, um, when I went to college, the first time I heard like D'Angelo, I was like, 
floored, you know, as, as many, (laughs) that's like a very common Berkeley discovery is like, Oh, you go to Berkeley and here's your, here's your voodoo CD. And, (laughs) and here's uh, the starter kit. Yeah. Here's the start, the Neo soul starter kit. And, (laughs) uh, and then, you know, I was introduced to, to, the guy, these guys in uh, at B, BU who eventually became my band and we I started discovering the band and that music and it and it vastly changed um what I wanted to write and what I wanted to play and how I thought of uh performing and playing to songs and stuff like that and and vocals you know it was just yeah. like yeah. a really cool uh like that discovery process in in college I'm actually like I was thinking about this the other day. I have I haven't had that like rabbit hole. Got, haven't been like really excited about something uh, musically as far as discovery in a while. So I'm yeah. I'm constantly like trying to get in there with some new artists and try to find someone yeah. that I'm like really latching onto. I'm having a tough Doesn't time. Doesn't feel so good. It yeah. does feel when so good. You don't have it, and it makes you appreciate when it's happening often. Right. And it's kind of like a testament to like the place you're in, the space you're in, that you're like, oh, okay, cool. And then you right. can go uh, for periods of time where it doesn't happen and you right. long for it. I say, like, there's so much out there. I know that there's going to be something else come along, but what am I not doing right now to yeah. make it, you know? Uh, so you're just uh, searching for the inspir- in, uh, inspiration from, right. you know, that's that's sparked by these these wonderful artists out there. Like, you know, I listened to. Um, when Phoebe Bridgers was big in the news, um, I listened to her albums and, and I really loved it. You know, I love, you know, Billie Eilish a lot and, and, and all the, the different types of music that's around her. And, and, um, but I think it's cool how, like you said, with, with, uh, periods of time, how they look back, I think it's amazing how the today's artists are using using synthesizers and sample sounds to improve on those sounds to make them sound not as like Amazing. not as um uh uh lame <laughs> not as lame sound like there was a certain you know? coldness to it right like when when yeah. the synths and stuff first started to come out um which you can feel it in a lot of the tracks in the 80s that and it, of course, bled over into the 90s that it was missing a certain warmth and a certain organic nature that now has yes. been resolved. And yes. I've, I've also thought about this, too, that modern artists who are uh, in pop or hip-hop, um, what they have in their canon is so profound because of the digital age. Yep. It's something that is terribly exciting because it has never happened before. You know, it used to be you would have either your record collection or, you know, a little folder of CDs. <laughs> you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. And the if book. you're going to listen to a track, you know, you are physically swapping. It took effort to do it. So therefore, there was already a barrier of entry in order to get that source of inspiration. But now being able to just stream, I mean, with a click, you can have access to just an unbelievable catalog of music all, all of it. it's changing the way people think and approach art because they have access to all of this inspiration it's insane yeah it's nuts and a lot of what it does is it weeds out all of the nonsense like the bad stuff you know you don't have yeah. to listen to a full i i personally enjoy listening to a full album and even hearing the clunkers on an album uh they're and, charming yeah it, well it shows i think it, i think it really paints paints the full picture of of who the artist really is you know what i mean like everybody all all, all the popular artists they have their hits and everything but i i like to listen to some of the b-sides and the back catalog and and kind of what they were trying to do within the course of an album and i'm always fascinated by the the album lineup how they choose where where things are going to sit if it's front loaded or if it's if it's good throughout the whole thing and has some Filler. I prefer that rather than have it be front loaded. But um, it's cool. Yeah, it's like art- artistic decisions. You're getting to, you know, feel intent behind yeah. why why yeah. I just did it. Yeah, it's really cool. I think it's very interesting. Yeah, one of my most recent um, finds. Well, I I think I had 
something makes me think somebody had maybe shown me one of his tunes before, but he's on John Prine's uh, label, Oh Boy, Dan Reader. Oh, I've heard uh, of Dan Reader, for sure. Dude, his songs and his records, just like it was one of the most recent ones that just lit me up. And I was like, oh my God, where you, you know, you feel like you've just been, you've just found this, uh, you know, this uh, pot of gold and you're just kind of like sifting through it. Um, what is it? What is it about his music that makes you feel that way? You think? Can you pinpoint any one thing? You know, I've I've tried I've tried to figure this out because you it's the same. I think the basis of it is the same as what's happening through like Spotify or Pandora algorithms. Like uh-huh. it's feeding you what you are interested in, and then it's like the good side of what an algorithm can do. Because if it yeah. is benefiting you and it is exposing you to music. And you're like, oh wait, am I really that simple? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but at the same time, it it is fitting certain categories. You know what I mean? And it's simply um, pushing those towards you. For for Dan Reader, he the things that really draw me to what he's doing is the same things that draw me to a couple of other like, uh, in my opinion, like unsung here. It's like a Ted Hawkins who was a, a busker out of California made these records. Um, Blaze Foley, who bounced around with uh, Towns Van Zandt. They're raw. Like, I love when a record has, like, life in it, and it's not too too polished. It feels very of the moment, you know? Yeah. Um, I also love when, like, the lyrical content is almost... It's it's quirky, it's funny, it's dark poetry, and it and it's also real. You know what I mean? It feels almost conversational in a way, you know, or like a turn of phrase that uh, is part of common conversation or vernacular is, is squeezed into a place that makes you go like, that's clever. I like that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, specifically for reader, he does most all of his songs. He doubles up on the vocals. Okay. And he also invents his own instruments. So he's just this like wild dude and they're very bare bones stripped down. Like I think his first record was like 25 tunes and some of them are like, 45 seconds you know and it uh yeah it's really really cool and um there's something about that oh yeah go ahead i'm sorry no no i'll I'll just give you a quick little anecdote that i was one of the things that also like like, man that's good lit me up this guy named todd snyder who he told the story about how dan reader got on the radar of john prine was that um snyder was on tour with prine in europe and at one of their shows, this fella comes up with his CD and boldly gives it to John Prine at the merch stand. He says, here's my record and I'd love for you to listen to it. You know, happens all the time. Snyder says, usually those go right in the garbage. And um, he uh, took the CD and they're back on the tour bus. And John Prine's looking at the CD and he said, wait a minute, guys. And uh, before I before I say, say any more, uh, is this a a podcast where we can yes uh, do you try to keep it clean or is no. it no okay okay yeah so you he go looks for it. It he goes uh he goes wait a minute guys there's a song on here called food and pussy he's <laughs> like i think we have to listen to this so throws <laughs> it, it in yeah and it's incredible it's like that that song specifically is like a doo-wop song and it's the whole first record he had him tour turn the tour bus around and went and found it Wow. <laughs> at the bar, he went and found him and said, "We're signing you to my record label." That's and incredible. it's just such a beautiful story, you know. It's like what a yeah. great thing to have happen, like to to first create the art, but then to also be bold and to say, "Here, you know, listen to this." Yeah, it's just great. You have to have you have to have something in- interesting that intrigues somebody and and yeah. wants to wants to hook them in, and then and then obviously the product behind it to to really to really uh hit hit it home um that's really really cool that's a really cool story thanks (laughs) (laughs) funny right yeah Uh, it's crazy um man it's great too what do you want i want food and pussy how come well that's the way god made me all right (laughs) oh it must be okay have you heard the song? I have heard the song, and, yeah, and Dan Dan actually introduced introduced this stuff to me, which I'm sure <laughs> happened because you introduced it to him during MDQ, and yeah, yeah, is that beautiful? That's the it way is kind of yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, actually, speaking of MDQ, uh, do you 
So when you were in school and stuff and working on something, was theater ever a background for you or was it ever? Um, no, the, no. Yeah. I think I always, I always wanted to be in theater and I always wanted to try acting. You know, I had that part of me as a kid, but I suffered from debilitating stage fright. Really? When I was a kid. Yeah. Really? So I, all the way through high school, even like, I remember having to give talks or speeches in front of the class, or even if I, you know, we had a couple of what I would say is almost like forced theater productions to like an English class. So where right. you would perform in the theater in front of another class I mean, as a background character. I mean, I would physically, tr I would have trembles. My voice wow. would quit. It was horrible. I couldn't even play the guitar in front of my uncle. It was almost like, you know, I would become a mess. Uh, I took a speech class and an improv after school improv my senior year because I was kind of like, I, you know, it was a, a better part of me. It was like, I got to try and overcome this. And the best way to do it is to just dive in the deep end. Just do and that helped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude. And that helped profoundly. And then right after high school, you know, I started uh, playing in bands and stuff and that it's like anything else. The more you do it, the more comfortable you get. The, right. The, the more you realize there's nothing to be afraid of. It's just your uh, fight or flight systems going into overdrive but um theater was always something that i was intrigued in and in fact unless i almost think on screen acting because i watched so much uh film and t tv shows when i was a kid i was very drawn to that so um to have million dollar quartet pop up was this strange starry-eyed blessing in disguise that had all of this layered stuff together one of which was performing as an actor and uh you know stage show yeah were you um were you already in new york when when that popped up no no i was actually so i used to have a band uh in dc called billy woodward and the senders there you go yes, love sir. to sam cook there yeah yeah <laughs> and we were doing really well like at the time we were like um we were playing a lot we were starting to catch some real um steam you know we had just opened up for G Love at 930 really? Club. Yeah. Awesome. Which was like a it was always a dream to play 930 Club. I was like, oh yeah, you know. And we did it. And then uh this was late um 2010. I had just left my full time gig uh at this animation studio outside of DC where I was doing like art direction to follow uh you know, pursue the band full time. Mm -hmm. and I played this gig in Baltimore called Night of a Hundred Elvises, lifelong Elvis fan. It hands down is one of my, it's not like it used to be. I don't think I, I'm hoping it's still happening. The last time I went, they had moved venues, but it used to be this incredible explosive night, two nights of Elvis music in the Lithuanian hall in downtown Baltimore. Wow. Three levels. Every level had a different thing. They had bands, variety acts, uh, tribute artists. Everybody's playing Elvis music. So uh, we had done it the year before, and we came back, and we were going to go big. So we got like you know some buddies from a, a ska band come in and do horns, and we you know did like you know a couple of the bigger Elvis tunes, and um, it just so happened a scout was there from the Telsey from the casting company for Million Dollar Quartet. And I got a an email like a week later. Said, "Hey, would you come up to New York and audition uh, for this thing?" Which is funny enough because um, Rosie and I had been dating for six months, I think, at that point, and uh, she had purchased me. She told me like after I got the email, I said, "Hey, Thanksgiving Day Parade. Do you remember that I mentioned like they made a show out of the." That record I love, Million Dollar Quartet, yeah. they want me to come up and audition. How crazy is that? And she's like, get the fuck out of here. She's like, I got to ruin your Christmas gift now. She's like, I bought you a first pressing of the vinyl of the original record for Whoa. your gift. Yeah. So it was like this weird, you know, serendipitous. That's why I just uh, got chills when he said that. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, Hold yeah, on. it was wild. So it's then, crazy. you know, came up, did the audition. They had me hang around for a couple days um, to uh, audition in front of the the director so i was like that has to be a good sign and then i came home and waited and sure as shit got the got the gig to cover elvis and cash 
on Broadway. That's how I met Dan. And yeah, you know. that's so crazy that that you would you were you were the understudy for two of the two of the characters. Yeah, that, do, that doesn't seem totally. that doesn't seem normal, right? Was there a reason behind it, or just they just thought you could do both, or that's a lot of work to do both? It is a lot of work, and I think that what the the intent behind it was that they were constantly looking for musicians who could fill the parts because that was insanely important for it to feel authentic is like find the musician so if they found a musician who had the i think the skill set to pull off the parts they tried to maximize on that right and say okay well then you can also cover this part because to be honest especially uh at the time I don't know. I think I would still have quite a difficult time scooping into some of those low notes of cash. <laughs> you know what I mean, like my my total rage just isn't quite there unless I've been slugging some whiskey the night before and you <laughs> yeah, know, sitting in a smoky bar room. But um, I never performed as Cash on Broadway. I was mainly an Elvis cover, even though Cash was my uh, also on the. But then I did ultimately in Vegas. I ended up going and performing as Cash for a whole week as a cover wow so, yeah because you did you it did you did vegas for a little bit and then you also did the touring show right right yeah yeah i did like the full gamut of mdq experiences i did oh broadway i went off on the first national tour for about two years came back and then um they called me out to chicago where, where the original show was still going um so i did that for a bit and then i did vegas as well Wow. Yeah, so quite a few productions of, of MDQ. And how long of a span of time did did this all last? Uh, let's see. So 2011 is when, like January 2011, and then I think 2015 maybe was probably the last time I I did a production, um, which I think was Vegas. It was 2015 or 2016? So you're looking at four years. Yeah, four years yeah, of time. It's, it's funny. It almost seems longer than that. Um, yeah, totally. just from, yeah. and it's funny because I don't know why it seems like that to me because I wasn't involved in it, but like, it's just like, um, you know, when I hear, hear about MDQ from, from, from Dan or like the stories behind it. And like, even when Dan had the experience when he was quote unquote discovered was we were playing, um, we were playing Rockwood one. And I, I'm curious. I don't know if you know, if it was the same person that found you, um, not but, sure, but it was yeah. a woman, and she was there, and uh, and same kind of deal. Like he got an email, a little, you know, a, f- a few days later or a week later, whatever it was, and then um, and that was it. And they came in for an audition. I remember talking to him. I was like, "They want you to like, you're gonna get this. <laughs> like, I, they probably don't. This probably isn't like a uh, normal thing. It's kind of crazy." <laughs> <laughs> but, oh yeah. yeah yeah it was an incredible experience yeah and awesome. it's one of those things that feels um like a plot line for a movie which is yeah. uh you know to, to to have that uh happen is obviously more so a blessing than anything else but there is definitely a little bit of a i don't want to say a curse but there's the underside of that too which is that it is a finite experience Right. And that to come off of it and to, you know, land on your feet and continue to do uh, your own music and art, um, I think is, it's not trying, but it definitely, after having an experience like that, it's kind of like you've just been rattled a little bit. Right. And then when you pivot back to your own stuff, it's obviously at a very different level. So therefore, there's like this weird juxtaposition and an acceptance that has to happen. And, yeah. uh, um, but while also I'm, I'm sure using, using that experience to try, you know, uh, I remember, you know, just, just hearing that this, uh, a person's story was a big deal. So if you were billed on a thing, you know, it, it probably said like million dollar quartet, you know, Billy right, Woodward. Right. So, yeah. Totally. Totally. Was that like yeah, a game, was... a game plan for you afterwards? was that did you have like a conscious thought like all right i'm done with million dollar quartet i want to do my own stuff or did you try to audition and do other things like that no i when we came back to new york i was mainly interested in pursuing my own music but i was also um interested in 
if there was a similar show in terms of how it was approached, I think, you know, what was the name of the other show that was kind of doing a similar thing, excuse me, once, yeah. which, uh, which, you know, again, had musicians playing the parts. But um, I quickly realized that, you know, speaking of things that light you up and, you know, invigorate you and, you know, flip the pilot light to an actual flame, that wasn't it. I knew that. Like, it wasn't like the broader scope of theater wasn't something I was necessarily interested in. I was more interested in pursuing songwriting and pursuing the, the you know. So when it came back, I just started playing a ton. You know, I was doing yeah. um, shows here in the city, you know, all the time while also pivoting back to um, animation to make ends meet, which sounds ridiculous. But <laughs> and it's so fu- it's so funny. It's so funny to me, like the way, yeah, the the way that you describe animation and like your experience with animation is that is like it's it's funny that you describe it almost as if like this is my like I'm sitting in a cubicle, like this is my cubicle job, and then (laughs) right because because like yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, no. I think the the reason that is is because I I found myself in a couple of positions that were that. Oh, okay. so therefore I had that experience when I was in DC, that gig that I had was incredibly creative and a lot of ownership over projects coming back here and focusing on art and music and then picking up some gigs for animation was more of just what you said, like cubicle or an editing room. And you're doing things that are not very creative. You know, it's like, um, like a, a good example would be like a lower third or like, you know what I mean? Like a motion graphics. I was able to get myself out of those paths because they were the wrong fit for me and find, um, you know, better places to be. But, um, you know, I ended up doing the, uh, two year stint at Rolling Stone, which mm-hmm. was, uh, originally for their films division and which, that kind of evaporated after I was there for a couple of months. And then I got pivoted over to a different department, which, you know, it started out like the creative ownership thing. And then all of a sudden it was, okay, here we go. We're creating, you know, packages and things again. Figured out what we wanted to do. It's like, here's your task, do this task. Right. So then, but I was able to at least forge a couple of paths there that were that I did some pretty cool, like editorial animations that were a bit more in the story uh, telling realm. Um, And then after I left there, I scored a couple more, um, more creative gigs for, Mm -hmm. um, for films. I did the one with David Crosby. uh, Mm -hmm. um, Was that all your animation on that, on that one, the, those cutscenes? Oh yeah, yeah, that was just me. It was just so me. So cool. Thanks, buddy. So, yeah, so that cool. was really fun, and it was one of those things that, uh, you know, to have both both of those worlds happening simultaneously. And I honestly, even when I got the Bowling Stone gig, I I pulled back on the music because I was like, this is a really cool opportunity, and right. you know, legacy brand, something passionate, and it kind of a fusion of the two. But the minute that that the the way I would describe it is like the reality of that and the idea of it started to separate. You had this huge chasm right. in between. Once that started to happen, I said, okay, uh, it's time to shake things up. Let's jump off the cliff, you know, like do, yeah. do the next thing. And then that opportunity came up as a result of one of the animations I had done, um, you know, kind of forged through, which was beautiful and great. It was kind of a testament to like, okay, cool. You know, like that, yeah. that worked out. Um, and then most recently I did, uh, the individualist, which um, is a story about this New York city photographer who was kind of like an honorary beastie boy um, named Ricky Powell, oh. uh, which is on Showtime right now. Yeah. Whoa. And the Tribeca film fest and uh, was the, you know, the, the guy who was leading the ship in that first iteration of the Rolling Stone experience. And I've remained um, yeah. you know, pretty tight. And so I did this, a similar thing for that film which is the cutscenes that are flashbacks and, you know, uh, kind of fully fleshed out animation. So that kind of arena of the art form, I'm very into and passionate about. And I'm yeah, with this imagine. new record looking at ways to, you know, mesh the two for my own 
self-expression in art which yeah do you ever do is, animations uh, to your to your own music as like a content creation kind of thing instead of a video which is funny no i you know i haven't this is kind of the first foray into doing it and um i've had to pick around inside my head as to why that is like and i think you kind of hit the nail early on which is that uh it's lived in a place of because of some of those experiences that it's oh that's work or that's like you know cubicle yeah. job or you, after you just don't want to blend the two worlds maybe um you know and having these experiences with the with the films has has probably just opened you up to the different possibility of of having it being used that way maybe. totally totally yeah yeah no i think that's i think that's pretty fair um it's um because it's an incredible art form when i was a kid that was one of my dreams like i wanted to be a, an, an animator for disney you know what i mean like one of the dudes with the sheets of paper you know like oh, doing that's the incredible. Thing, which you know went kaput and then came back again in a digital form but uh i love those old like little documentaries and, and where they take you through the animators room and they show you the papers and you're like god how is this possible like how does it get from there to me seeing it, it's 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 uh it's incredible and that's obviously a thought from someone that yeah. has no concept of how it works but it's like it's it it seems no it's it's so, even if you know how it works it's really magic. <laughs> it seems, yeah. it's so yeah. magical like animation is yeah. is magic it's like you can do anything yeah. with it you can tell stories you can do whatever make you know i think that um regardless of like technological advancements with motion capture and I don't think we'll ever lose that thread. There'll always be somebody doing it because the interpretation of movement, the interpretation of um, emotion through what is a series of drawings yeah. is unique and special in itself. There was a great exhibit in Chicago, one of the trips I took up there that uh, was at the site of the old world's fair, mm -hmm. which um I don't know. Did you ever read that book, Devil in the White City? No, no, I haven't. Great read. It reads like a thriller fiction novel, but it's nice. all factual. Like the wow. whole thing is, uh, it's kind of pairing this murder mystery with this. I mean, he was a psychopathic mass murderer <laughs> who was targeting <laughs> the World's Fair and also the guy who pulled off the World's Fair and um, was able to actually get it to happen in Chicago. And so all that had happened. Um, at this one location, I forget the name of the park, but I was hot to go there after I read the book. I'd like landed in Chicago in this like winter and <laughs> I just finished this book. I was like, dude, I need to go see yeah. where the world's fair was held. But it happens that Walt Disney's father, Elias Disney had worked on the construction of the sites and that world's fair was insanely inspirational to Walt Disney. Wow. It sparked his imagination. It was one of the things that, uh, you know, later on became Disneyland and Disney World. Um, right, right. So they had a museum. It was like, I think it was a traveling exhibition. I don't think it was just meant for there, but it was definitely temporary about Walt Disney's life. And, uh, you know, while also a visionary, a businessman, and to take something that was novelty at the time, which was you know, people would go to cinema and to see these drawings of like, I think they had one of at the time of Brontosaurus, you know, like moving was like, uh, I think it was called Gertie, like freaked people out. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. To take that idea and say, we're going to do, we're going to actually do films about this with the ultimate goal of doing a feature film. They thought it was nuts. They think anybody was going to sit through 90 minutes of a cartoon of right. a series of drawings, but you watch that original Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and it's a piece of, it's a piece it's of incredible. art, you know, it's incredible. It's like, you know, watercolor backdrops and every single frame is hand drawn and hand painted. You know, they didn't have the digital um, uh, shortcuts that you have now. And you think, wow, yeah. dude, that that's exceptional. How long must that have, that have taken? Cause it's like, it's, it's Years. Oh yeah. I mean, it's just crazy yeah. to think of how, and is it like multiple people drawing in the same, in the same, like, uh, style like in working all together as one like how how does that work like putting together multiple because wouldn't people have different styles and maybe not make things look the same or is it just like um can people 
literally just draw like, okay, this is how this is drawn. This is how it has to look. And these artists can, can pull that off. Bingo. Okay. Right. And that's the testament to like, you know, the, the, the great skill sets of the, the, the artists they would get gotcha. is that um, they could match style with whatever was established. So you'd have okay. at the top end, you know, they would um, do storyboarding, you know, you have your script, you would start storyboarding out what the scenes are going to look like. And then you have somebody come along and say, these are the, the, the style guides. This is the, the the character Bible. This is what we're going to make this character look at, look like when they're looking at you three quarter behind. And then the artists would uh, digest that. And then you would have your main senior animators who they would do what you call keyframes. So they would yeah. give the big, the big moments of animation. Right? <clears throat> and then you had these in-betweeners, which are junior artists and they fill in between, you know, so all those frames wow. in between. So if you have like a character that's here and then moving here, that keyframe artist is only doing two drawings. Meanwhile, there might need to be 20 drawings in between that's done by a junior artist and he's just drawing wow. every single one. Yeah, that's crazy. Man, yeah. that is fascinating. That's nuts, right? Yeah. It is nuts. And, then, and then they have a thing called a dope sheet, which is paired to the um, audio. So, you have to match it, uh, which was again a technological um, breakthrough that Disney pulled off with Steamboat Willie with Mickey Mouse. Oh, right, was right, this right. idea of an animation paired with with audio that instead of just a track playing and the animation happened, animation is happening in congruency with the audio. So it's make you know now you can have a character whistling like you know or right. or mouthing out words and uh, so digitally it's just, does it's that a, big it, thing technologically it's crazy <laughs> yeah i mean just just me imagining just someone sitting down and doing all those drawings and in, in that particular style it's just like wow i wonder i wonder if some of those junior animators felt like this is incredible or if they felt like this is like the task i have to do and not really understanding what what kind of impact what they were doing was going to have later on i i i'm cautious to say that i'm probably pulling a bit of this from memory and making assumption with the rest, which is that that's what we do here. <laughs> I know, I know, story of my life. <laughs> but uh, I think that uh, a lot of the early guys were just so passionate about, yeah. you know, creating it. I do seem to recall at some point, not that there was a revolt, but that there was definitely kind of like, I don't know if they unionized or what, but that there was a bit of a, Hey, we're working a lot of hours here to pull this off and it's, you know, yeah. we should be compensated a bit more fairly for it, you know. Yeah. Well, that would make sense but, uh, because I mean, it's like the it's the first time this is really happening on that scale and that level for something right. for, for a feature film. I mean, it's just like, you know, we're not talking about shorts, you know, which probably yeah. take long enough and then add add uh, you know, 80 88 minutes to it <laughs> you know it's just kind of it's nuts too you think about the art form and where it lives today it's like it's not just children's entertainment there's adult animated oh, yeah. cartoons it's like it's everywhere so animation is just everywhere these days dude pixar and, um, pixar plays just, in this house a lot oh i bet i bet yeah as uh how, how old is ethan he'll be two in april Okay. All right. All right. So yeah, we're, we're getting to the point where I think a Disney plus membership is in our future, but uh, <laughs> it, um, it'll save your life. This did just make me, make me think of something too. When uh, you were asking about the animated, I think there's also a bit of a battle and it's not that I think I know it a bit of a battle too with uh, uh, perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to trying to create an animated piece for myself or for a music video, I have learned through quite a bit of work that I need to untether myself because it just leads to inaction. Because if you uh, put too much weight or too much expectation on something, you lose out on what could, what could be, you know right. I mean? Even if it doesn't hit a mark that, you know, I could say I could make plenty of excuses, but they're just excuses. At the end of the day, it's like um, there, there's a lot more, uh, reasons to do it <laughs> not to and right. sometimes the reasons not to that get in the way are um, you know perfectionism or, or self-doubt or it not perhaps living up to your version of what that self-expression should be or you mm -hmm. want it to be um and again i think that's just deeper you know more you know 
cobwebs in the the old cloud up here that you need to sort out you know well i mean i think that i think that's the key of what stops so many anybody from from doing something that they want to do you know what i mean yeah yeah. um the the idea that they won't be good enough or or that you know you know what it's going to take to perfect this thing or or you start and then you're like it's just not right i can't release it yet or i can't do that you know and then it can drive it into the ground when that Exactly, and then you, you lose yeah. you lose the reason why you started doing it in the first place. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a great that's a great point. Um, and this new record actually deals with a lot of this stuff because um, you know over the time of coming back after MDQ, this is a little personal anecdote because when I first got the gig on Broadway, moved to New York, which I auditioned in December got the gig and was in New York, January 1st, January wow. 2nd. Wow. So it was like within a few weeks, I was all of a sudden living in uh, an apartment in Times Square. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a, for, yeah. In February, my mom passed away. Mm. So there was this heavy juxtaposition of this most incredible experience in my life, this fulfillment of, of, dreams to 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 be doing what i was doing and then all of a sudden have such a tragic and traumatizing life event mm-hmm. smushed right up next to it wow. here's where it gets sticky is because i was at home during a period of time afterwards and compressed most of what i considered to be grieving into that time came back to new york was on Broadway for, you know, almost a, almost a year, I want to say nine months, and then left on tour for two years. It gave me the most beautiful out. Like I basically was able to run away from everything and not, mm. you know, keep myself engaged and interested in other things and never truly dealing with the gravity of that loss. And mm-hmm. so what happened is when I came back to New York, um, it caught up as it would if you don't go through it. So I spent uh, a fair amount of time in in therapy. I ended up going to therapy for a couple of years um, to try and work out not just that, but stuff from childhood and stuff that I felt was in the way or was negatively affecting my day to day. Mm -hmm. And so through that, you end up with a lot of clarity and a lot of, for better or worse, (laughs) clarity for better or worse, but, and also a lot of language, a lot of ways to at least articulate what the fuck is going on, you know, and maybe even some tools. The way I described it is that I feel like I was in a pit and I had fashioned whatever I could to build a ladder to climb out of that pit. Right. And at some point, the nature of that ladder, the fact it was fashioned together with, scraps and leaves and sticks gave way and that through that experience i was able to fashion something a bit more firm and and strong in order to you know slowly get back up but uh the record is kind of about a lot of that shit which is you know not comparing yourself with others instead the person you were yesterday you kind of the you know and also the, the the storms that inevitably come in especially in this day and age if you're a creative and even if you're not, you know, it's like, uh, I think for the first time, mental health is being talked about more frequently. And yeah, it seems it like quite a bit, which is incredible. Yeah. 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 So it's like, uh, it's, it's, uh, I think it's one of those things that everybody deals with it because life is tough and it's going to get you whether you're prepared for it or not. And mm-hmm. by, um, going through those, really turbulent and hard times they make they're what give the good times the sweetness right because you have something to the yin and yang you have something to hold it up against you know so yeah and what i'm hearing what i'm hearing a bunch from you is like just the ability your ability to like see what you need to do to make it better because not everybody will go and and be like okay well i need to unpack this let's go to therapy and figure it out um just just the ability to see to know what you should do to make things better and then going ahead and doing those things like and even even when you got off the plane in Chicago and you said I have to go see this place this thing that happened it's like 
that probably wouldn't have been my first thought is like it's like oh yeah that thing happened and and just the idea to go the extra mile and see where it came from and where it stemmed from and then also to to um know that your animation thing that you were doing before the roll the before the the rolling stone like all right this isn't cool i i need to jump off the cliff and address the way i'm feeling by pivoting and going to do something else you know what i mean it's, it's just I, like it seems like a a, a um a straight line through through a lot of your decisions yeah i guess i've been pretty fortunate in that arena is that i haven't while my perception of self might not feel like that if i'm right. objectively able to look back and go oh, okay yeah i have been quite the risk taker at points in terms of like doing what maybe my guts crying out for, or, or if something's not feeling right in a way that um, isn't just rational or logic, but maybe it's living in that space of like, Oh man, I feel mm-mm, something's got to feel a little shift. itchy. You got to get out of here. Right. And, yeah. and then to, to, to do something about it, you know? Yeah. Um, because, you know, I've, I'm, you know, I've obviously in a conversation like this, you're, you're talking about all the good stuff. There's plenty of times where, you you don't <laughs> you know what I mean like you oh, don't of make, course. make the movement and uh, you pay the price for that and you but it's uh, like big you, picture big picture thing because those those times where course, you're, yeah, those times yeah, where yeah. you don't make the right decision or something those are the failures that you learn from you know educational to, AF yeah you have you have to do it because then if those things yeah. didn't happen then you it wouldn't lead you to those better better decisions so that's why I'm a big believer in uh, shedding any idea of regret because. Oh yeah. You know, it's just everything adds up to your current state and adds up to where you are. And as especially now as a father, which yeah. you know, I'm sure like it's it's such a transformative experience. And uh I love being a dad. Like I absolutely love it. And yeah, being being across that, you sort of you you look and you say, Wow, my kid wouldn't be here if it wasn't for all those decisions and failures and successes like right, it's right. a direct result this person that is here is mm-hmm. because of all of those for better or worse so therefore it makes it all worth it, it makes it all yeah. golden you know we do things and other things happen you know it's Bingo. Like, action yeah. reaction yeah exactly yeah. Oh, that's cool well i think that's a nice place to end it on um, yeah, yeah. yeah dude thank you so much i really appreciate you sitting down hey, telling me, tell me some really good stories i love it <laughs> thanks for having me I'm yeah, uh, thrilled to be a part of it and that is the episode with Billy Woodward please stick around for the music at the end of this spiel here you can always email into the podcast at afterthegigpod at gmail.com go to the store afterthegigpod.com go get yourself a sweatshirt or a t-shirt or a mug or something for the kids um, hopefully I see you guys soon and I will uh I'll talk to you later. See you next week. Hey, baby. Oh,